1: Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can find a link there to send me a message and a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, this is somewhat of a continuation. It's a continuation in topic, but the themes touch on some different areas. Uh, we're going to take a continued look at PFAS and this big family of chemicals that is ubiquitous in our products, in our air, in our water, in our food, and the negative impacts that that is having on our environment and our own health, and the efforts to limit and regulate those chemicals, and the efforts by the producers of those chemicals to dodge and thwart and slow down that regulation. First up is a piece written by Grace Van Dielen, published at thenewlead.org. A class of chemicals linked to multiple health hazards in humans have been detected in hundreds of wildlife species across the United States, according to a report issued Wednesday. The report was released by the Environmental Working Group, EWG, along with a map demonstrating that per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as PFAS, are contaminating wildlife on every continent except Antarctica. The data adds to several other reports of PFAS contamination in wildlife and adds to the mounting concerns many researchers have about the long-term health and sustainability of important ecosystems. Quote, it's a shocking wake-up call that much more needs to be done to protect wildlife from the impacts of industrial chemicals, said David Andrews, a senior scientist at EWG and an author of the report. PFAS are a class of chemicals used in a wide array of industries and products. They are often referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment. The chemicals have been linked to an array of human health problems, including certain cancers, reproductive issues, and developmental problems. The map showing the extent of the contamination in wildlife reflects data from 125 peer-reviewed studies of a wide range of species, including fish, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals. PFAS contamination has been documented in polar bears in the Arctic Circle, tigers in China, plankton off the coast of Panama, crocodiles in South Africa, and many more species. Andrews emphasized that the map only shows a fraction of the likely global contamination of wildlife and that PFAS contamination... Is likely far more common than the map suggests even species in remote parts of the globe also have contamination he said it seems unlikely that any species has fully been able to escape the reaches of these chemicals Heidi Pickard a PhD candidate at Harvard University who studies PFAS in aquatic systems agreed this is just a glimpse she said The findings build on a study published last month showing widespread contamination of freshwater fish in the U.S. That report showed that the majority of freshwater fish sampled from lakes, rivers, and streams across the country had significant levels of PFAS contamination. Enough that just eating one meal of caught fish per year was equivalent to drinking PFAS contaminated water for a month. Research suggests that PFAS has hazardous health impacts on some wildlife, although more research is needed, said Cheryl Murphy, the director of the Center for PFAS Research at Michigan State University. There are some harmful effects of PFAS on lab species, but also on humans. If we're seeing impacts on lab rats and on humans, I imagine there's going to be effects on fish and wildlife as well, she said. The ubiquitous contamination of wildlife could have broader ecosystem impacts, too. Though more research is needed to determine if that's the case, according to researchers. Quote, There's much more research that needs to be done on how PFAS impacts species, especially endangered or threatened species, said EWG's Andrews. But we do know a significant amount about how potent these chemicals are and their ability to interact with a wide range of biological systems, so even the documented contamination itself is cause for concern. Another concerning trend shown by the map, according to Pickard, is the contamination of wildlife in remote regions, such as the Canadian Arctic, the Faroe Islands, and Greenland. This contamination in far-flung areas illustrates the ability of PFAS to travel long distances across the globe, reaching wildlife that live mostly removed from common industrial sources of pollution, she said. The Endangered Species Act, ESA, a law passed in 1973, establishing protections for endangered and threatened species, could be a tool to help enforce PFAS regulation, according to the Center for Biological Diversity, a nonprofit research and advocacy group. In comments submitted to the Environmental Protection Agency last summer, the Center for Biological Diversity stated that the EPA's current water quality criteria were underprotective of listed species. The group wrote that given the threat that PFAS chemicals pose to wildlife, the EPA should update its 1985 water quality guidelines for PFAS to fully comply with ESA mandates that the government agencies ensure their actions are, quote, not likely to jeopardize the continued existence of any endangered species or threatened species. Halting production of PFAS chemicals is one primary way to prevent future wildlife contamination, said Picard. Stop exposing animals to the production of these chemicals, she said. And that piece mentioned a piece uh, discussed in this next article. This piece is written by Hillary Hansen and is published at HuffPost.com. A Michigan environmental nonprofit tested freshwater fish caught around the state and found that all of them contain substances often called forever chemicals, according to a press release published Thursday. It just demonstrates how ubiquitous these chemicals are in the environment, Erica Bloom, Toxics Campaign Director at the Ecology Center, told The Guardian. The chemicals detected were perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, a group of manufactured chemicals that break down at an extremely slow rate, meaning that they can accumulate over time in the environment and in the human body. PFAS are often used in manufacturing and are also present in a slew of consumer goods, including nonstick cookware, stain repellents, and food packaging, among others. The Environmental Protection Agency warns that, quote, exposure to certain levels of PFAS may lead to health issues in humans that can include reproductive problems, developmental delay, hormone interference, and cancer. In Michigan, the Ecology Center worked with local anglers to catch 100 fish from 15 sites along the state's Huron and Rogue Rivers. Researchers tested 12 different species of commonly consumed fish, including bluegill, smallmouth bass, and river chub. 14 different PFAS chemicals were detected, with a range of 11,000 to 133,000 parts per trillion. One chemical in particular, known as PFOS, was found in every fish. Michigan issues a do-not-eat advisory when PFOS levels reach 300,000 parts per trillion. However, the EPA's recommended limit for PFOS in drinking water is 0.02 parts per trillion, which, the Guardian notes, indicates that almost no amount is considered safe to consume. The Ecology Center wants Michigan not only to make its PFAS advisory guidelines stricter, but also to establish guidelines for other PFAS chemicals. The new results are in line with an unaffiliated study published by the scientific journal Environmental Research in December. That report said that freshwater fish consumption is, quote, likely a significant source of exposure to PFAS. Fish in the Great Lakes and urban areas were found to have especially high levels of contamination. Quote, You'd have to drink an incredible amount of water. We estimate a month of contaminated water to get the same exposure as you would from a single serving of freshwater fish. David Andrews, a senior scientist at Environmental Working Group who co-authored the December study, told CNN. So in addition to the impacts of PFAS chemicals on the fish themselves and on the other wildlife themselves in the other studies, when these chemicals impact species that humans consume, like these fish, then we get these compounded effects. Not only is are they disrupting the lives of those fish, but if those... Fish are then eaten by humans or other animals. Those PFAS compounds are passed on into the bloodstream of those other animals and are allowed there to disrupt all kinds of biological processes. Here's a piece published at undark.org written by Bennett Goldstein. The ensnared fish seemed to materialize from the water. Thrashing, wriggling, they rose, enfolded by mesh. The lift reeled the gill net into the arms of a waiting crew, who hoisted it atop a table. Iridescent scales popped into the air like confetti as the men gripped and untangled the flopping lake herring from the net. When the floor is shiny with scales, we know we are making money, said commercial fishermen, Donnie Livingston, grinning widely. Shortly before dawn, the fish tug Ava June pulled out from Duffy's dock on the tip of northern Wisconsin's Bayfield Peninsula. The vessel churned through Lake Superior's chilly waters for two and a half hours before reaching nets set the previous day. Livingston is a citizen of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, one of six federally recognized Ojibwe tribes in Wisconsin. His family has fished for generations and holds an original license issued to Red Cliff citizens, but their access to Lake Superior fish was never a given. Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi communities, who also call themselves Anishinaabe, have fished in the Great Lakes for centuries. But in the mid-1800s, the federal government, desiring to open the Wisconsin Territory to lumbering and mining, forcibly acquired Ojibwe lands and waters through treaties. Tribes retained hunting and gathering and fishing rights across what is now called the ceded Territory, portions of the three great lakes and millions of acres in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. The final treaty established reservations for four of the Wisconsin Ojibwe tribes. States spent a century disregarding or rejecting treaty rights. After tribal citizens sued, several court rulings starting in 1971 would affirm their reserved rights within the ceded territory, including the right to fish on Lake Superior. But many see Great Lakes pollution as a continued encroachment on how Ojibwe communities exercise those rights. Alongside toxic mercury and carcinogenic polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, are the latest contaminants of concern per and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS the class of more than 12,000 forever chemicals accumulate in the environment and in humans scientists link two of the most widely researched PFAS PFOA and PFOS to a range of health problems including cancer the failure of federal and state governments to keep contaminants out of the environment scholars and environmental advocates say, calls into question their commitment to protecting indigenous rights. It's a modern way of denying access and destroying foodways, said Katrina Phillips, an associate professor of history at McAllister College and a Redcliffe citizen. It's through chemicals and pollutants, instead of treaties and court cases. Livingston and his business partner, Brian Bainbridge, teamed up a decade ago after growing up in and around Redcliffe. The work is grueling. Profit margins narrow. Crew, tough to find. Livingston has tried other careers, but always returned to fishing. It's something I know how to do, he said. It's something I can depend on. The Red Cliff reservation flanks Lake Superior's southern coastline, marked by sandstone cliffs, wetland sloughs, and rivers. Coyotes, white tailed deer, and bobcats roam its 15,000-plus acres. Bald eagles soar overhead, and ospreys dive to prey on fish. These relatives, the plants and animals, land and water, sustain Ojibwe communities. Gigoon, or fish, are important for subsistence, culture, and business. But climate change threatens many species and due to contaminants long polluting the Great Lakes, the health of people who eat them. More than 7,600 people are living Redcliffe tribal citizens, about 16% of whom live on the reservation. A few hundred reside three miles south in Bayfield, a destination for lake-loving tourists. The tribe is the county's largest employer, providing about 300 jobs, many in tribal administration, and the legendary Waters Resort and Casino. But at its heart, Redcliffe is a fishing community. That's what everybody's family has done around here, said Bainbridge, a former Redcliffe tribal chairman. I grew up on fish. After decades of overfishing from the late 1800s through the 1930s and the introduction of invasive species, Lake Superior's fish populations have rebounded enough to sustain a consumer market among tribally licensed commercial fishermen, whitefish, salmon, lake trout, trout, and lake herring constitute the bulk of the catch. The combined commercial fish harvest of 11 Ojibwe nations that are members of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission annually exceeds two million pounds. For much of the 20th century, manufacturing plants generated mercury and PCB containing wastes and dumped them directly into the Great Lakes or its watershed. Power plants and incinerators also spewed pollution The tainted waters, and they continue to do so. The Toxic chemicals accumulate in the water and sediments and fish. Their concentrations have declined significantly in Great Lakes waters since the 1970s due to efforts of the U.S. and Canadian governments, states, and industry to reduce toxic emissions. Yet, lingering mercury and PCBs bioaccumulate in the animals at levels high enough to warrant fish consumption advisories. PFAS are also drawing greater scrutiny as their harms come into focus. In 2021, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources issued Lake Superior's first PFOS advisory, warning against eating too many smelt. PFAS, which are added to products ranging from fabric stain protectors, to firefighting foam, to food packaging and to water bodies through wastewater, airport, and fire training runoff, and the atmosphere. Compared to the other Great Lakes, the concentrations of PFAS in Lake Superior water is lower due to less development within its watershed. But virtually no amount of PFOA and PFOS is safe for human consumption, according to the EPA which in 2022 updated draft health advisories for the two chemicals. The impacts of such pollution and climate change create, quote, an elevated level of environmental anxiety in Ojibwe communities, said Dylan Bizhikins Jennings, associate director of Northland College's Sigurd Olson Environmental Institute and a formal council member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Edith Leoso, a retired Bad River Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, grew up on the reservation in her grandparents' house. When she was eight years old, her grandmother decided to teach her to pray for the water by placing tobacco into a nearby river. Don't do anything disrespectful on this water or to this water, her grandmother told her, because it'll take care of you and everything you need is here. Indigenous origin stories, histories, languages, and cultures are embedded in the land and water, said Phillips, the historian. For Ojibwe people in northern Wisconsin, Lake Superior, and the northern part of Wisconsin with Red Cliff and Bad River, these places define who we are, she said, in accordance with their Bimadiziwin or traditional lifeway. Ojibwe people harvest from nature as an act of stewardship. If they do not, the Creator will cease to provide those beings. When the land and water are contaminated, future generations lose knowledge and stories centered on fishing and other harvesting. Family, kinship, oral history, ceremony, community cohesion, food security, and self-determination suffer. Everything that makes us native, said Patty Lowe, director of the Center for Native American and Indigenous Research at Northwestern University and a Bad River citizen. If the health of the fish or the wild rice is compromised, she said, then treaty rights are meaningless. Court rulings that affirmed treaty rights addressed whether, where, and how Ojibwe tribes could exercise them. Courts considered the quantity of natural resources, but not their quality, It's a legal gray area, how far the tribes can dictate what a state or the federal government might have to do or not do in order to preserve their treaty rights, said Anne McCammon-Soltis, director of the Division of Intergovernmental Affairs at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. But GLIFWC's member tribes believe states should preserve the integrity of natural resources, she said. A recent EPA proposal could address some of those concerns. The draft rule would compel states to account for treaty rights such as fishing and wild rice gathering when setting standards under the Clean Water Act. That law forces states, territories, and some tribal governments to improve the quality of water bodies when they cannot safely be used for designated purposes like drinking or recreation. States would also need to preserve full use of any resources guaranteed under the treaties on and off reservations. The EPA is accepting public comment on the draft rule until March 6. Wisconsin DNR officials said the agency already consults with tribes and considers their uses of a water body when it sets standards. Tribes also may submit comments when states review their standards every three years. But the states haven't really had to respond in any way when the tribe presents a request, Soltis said. This indicates that the EPA is going to be a little bit more willing to take what the tribes say seriously. Absent stronger state and federal action, Ojibwe communities have forged strategies to protect water, fisheries, and lifeways now and for the next seven generations. Red Cliff's Treaty Natural Resources Division oversees the protection and enhancement of the natural resources within the reservation's boundaries in the band's ceded territory. That includes stream and riverbank restoration, water and air quality monitoring, hazardous waste disposal, and wild rice reseeding. An environmental justice specialist monitors outside projects, including mines, pipelines, and concentrated animal feeding operations that could affect treaty rights. The tribe bolsters food sovereignty through its Red Cliff Fish Company, which opened in 2020, and 35-acre Mino Bimatazewin Gitaganen Return to the Good Life Farm. Redcliffe tribal fish hatchery staff raise brook trout in hopes of restoring populations to past levels in Lake Superior. They also rear walleye and ponds to increase populations in inland lakes. Practicing treaty rights might be viewed as a political act in a country with a long history of challenging them. Quote, Having to fight for access to food is kind of mind-boggling in a sense, Phillips said. Advocating for the right to feed your people is somehow seen as resistance or activism. And it is, and it has to be, in, in... nations dominated by capitalism and capitalist practices advocating for food and for healthy food for your community is a political act is is activism is resistance because the pressures of capitalism ignore those things they don't take into account the need to provide healthy food for every individual. That's not the basis of capitalism. When when the necessities of life, food, water, health are commodified, turned into products that are then sold in a system that is capitalist based, then... The primary thing that matters is, is it, is it profitable? And the things that are not profitable are not supported and pursued. And this makes people's lives dependent on what someone else can make a profit from. This is, this is a horrible, horrible economic system. When you judge a system by how well and how effectively it supports the basic needs of the people that live within the system. And uh, capitalism fails to do so. And this is just one little glimpse of a little corner of why that's the case. We're poisoning the environment. We're poisoning these fish. These fish are a right for these tribes to harvest and to use as food and to use as a source of income. But as these fish get less and less fit for consumption, then we're destroying this group's ability to feed itself and to live in, in a capitalist society. Um, it's a it's a horrible system and these aren't like byproducts of the system these are these are features of the system survival of the fittest next up is a piece published at pencapital-star.com this is written by john l missick new research indicates that the spread of toxic so-called forever chemicals nationwide has left few parts of the country untouched with the true scope of the problem most likely dramatically underreported according to one expert the research published this week in the journal environmental science and technology letters identifies more than 57,000 sites potentially contaminated by man-made pfas or per and alkyl substances The 57,412 sites with potential contamination include places where PFAS-laden firefighting foam, known as aqueous film-forming foam, or AFFF, was likely released. Certain industrial facilities, sites related to PFAS containing waste, military sites and airports, according to the Environmental Working Group. The study was led by a team at Northeastern University in Boston and was joined by researchers elsewhere. The advocacy group said in a statement. PFAS contaminants have been linked to a variety of health concerns in humans, including fertility issues, low birth weights, and an increased risk of cancer, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Capital Star reported in April. While there are currently no federal standards for regulating the substances, several states, including California, Colorado, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, and Vermont, have adopted or proposed limits for PFAS in drinking water, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. The chemicals are proven to be a particular challenge in Pennsylvania, especially around the Willow Grove Naval Air Station in suburban Philadelphia, the Capital Star reported in 2020. Republican U.S. Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, whose Bucks County-based 1st District seat, includes the military installation, and U.S. Representative Chrissy Houlihan, Democrat 6th District, a veteran, have been vocal proponents of stronger federal action to fight the chemicals. Last year, the Environmental Working Group released research identifying 41,862 potential dischargers of PFAS, including facilities and industries known to use PFAS, waste facilities, and airports. The advocacy group's research also noted the, quote, presence of an additional 21,350 inactive locations that could also be potential sources of PFAS contamination, the group said in its statement. The true scale of PFAS contamination in the United States is likely dramatically underreported, David Andrews, a senior scientist at environmental working group, said in a statement. As PFAS are found to be harmful at lower and lower levels, it is critically important to identify sources of potential contamination and take steps to protect downstream communities who may be unwittingly exposed. In April, more than two dozen advocacy groups sent a letter to the State Department of Environmental Protection asking regulators to adopt a more stringent set of guidelines for protecting Pennsylvania's drinking water from PFAS contamination, the Capital Star reported at the time. In its statement, the Environmental Working Group said identifying potential sources of discharge is important because it helps state regulators to target future testing and to alert surrounding communities of the risk. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently proposed designating the two most notorious types of PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, as hazardous substances, the advocacy group said. Such a designation would require the immediate reporting of more than a pound of chemicals, Within 24 hours, quote, for decades, industrial discharges of PFAS have been allowed to pollute with impunity. Melanie Banesh, an environmental working group's vice president of government affairs, said federal regulations limiting discharges into the air and water are urgently needed to turn off the tap at the source. The EPA should move swiftly to set regulations for the industries most likely to be dumping PFAS into the environment. State regulators should also act quickly to incorporate limits on the amount of PFAS that can be released into existing permits. And this piece by Ravi Naidu, published at phys.org. They stop your food from sticking to the pan. They prevent stains in clothes and carpets. They help firefighting foam to extinguish fires. But the very thing that makes forever chemicals so useful also makes them dangerous. Forever chemicals, the catchier name for the class of chemicals known as PFAS, don't break down in the environment. Since we invented and began using them in the 1940s, these chemicals have stuck around, contaminating water and soil. And when they make it into our bodies, they can bind to proteins and accumulate in organs, which may increase your cancer risk or damage your health. Major manufacturers are now facing lawsuits over the potential health impact of the chemicals. How do they make it into your body? There's been a lot of concern over their presence in drinking water, but there's another risk, food. Like many countries, Australia has long used biosolids as fertilizer. Biosolids is just the uh, industry PR sanitized name for sewage sludge. Made from processed stormwater and sewage, this soil-like substance adds vital nutrients to our notoriously poor soils. The problem is, forever chemicals are now in biosolids. Even though the levels are low, authorities are expected to soon make precautionary change to regulations, which would prevent the use of biosolids as we now understand crops can accumulate these chemicals and pass them on to us. How exactly do these chemicals get into our food? Most of Australia's biosolids are used on farms as a type of fertilizer. While it might sound icky, this substance is vital. Well, I mean, that's debatable. It is an important substance to modern, harmful agricultural, industrial agricultural practices. But other agricultural practices could be uh, used that would not rely on biosolids. Similar to compost made with human waste, it's processed by bacteria and dried for at least three years. So it's not that different from using cow or sheep manure on your garden. Biosolids help maintain soil structure and help sequester carbon from the atmosphere. They're essential for growing crops in Australia's nutrient depleted soils as they provide plants with nutrients and trace metals and everything else that goes into the sewer system. That's why it's so unfortunate Forever Chemicals have found their way here. PFAS was first discovered in biosolids waste in Australia in the early 2000s. The way it gets there is via domestic and industrial wastewater, which flows through stormwater drains and ends up being turned into biosolids at treatment plants. Authorities are concerned PFAS may become more concentrated in the future as we cycle it through our water and fertilizers into our food into our bodies, back through our waste systems, and then eventually back to our fertilizers, and so on. If the chemicals are present only at very low levels, you might wonder if it matters. But these chemicals accumulate up the food chain. For example, a corn crop may contain only trace elements of PFAS chemicals, but if the corn is then fed to pigs, the pigs will end up with higher levels of PFAS over time. We, too, are storing these chemicals in our bodies. The more we eat food with trace levels of PFAS, the more we accumulate and the greater the health risk. That's why prospective bans are being looked at, not just here, but around the world. And here's a piece published at ecowatch.com written by Olivia Rosan. There are more than 17,000 sites across Europe that have been contaminated with toxic forever chemicals and another more than 21,000 sites that have likely been polluted. That's one main finding from the Forever Pollution Project, a months-long collaboration between 18 European newsrooms to investigate and map the extent of polyfluoroalkyl substances (PFAS) pollution across the continent and in the UK. After our data collection on an unprecedented scale, this map is the first to illustrate the widespread contamination of Europe by these toxic and persistent substances, reporters at Le Monde wrote on Thursday. The French newspaper developed the investigation along with Germany's NDR, WDR and Suddeutsche Zeitung, Italy's Radar Magazine and La Science and the Netherlands' The Investigative Desk and NRC, according to the project website. It involves scouring over more than 1,200 confidential documents from the European Commission and the European Chemicals Agency, ECHA. The final result was a forever pollution map that revealed the following data points according to Le Monde. 20 PFAS production facilities where the chemicals are actually synthesized. More than 17,000 sites that have tested positive for PFAS contamination. 232 sites that use PFAS to make other products, from plastics to pesticides to waterproof clothing. More than 21,000 sites that have not been tested, but where contamination is likely based on the industrial or military activities that occurred there. More than 2,100 hotspots, with contamination levels at least 100 nanograms per liter, which experts consider a health risk. At around 640 hotspot sites, concentrations were more than 1,000 nanograms per liter. And at 300 sites, more than 10,000 nanograms per liter, the Guardian reported. These sorts of concentrations raise concerns with me, Professor Crispin Halsall, a Lancaster University environmental chemist, told the Guardian. You have the risk of livestock gaining access to those waters, and then PFAS is in the human food web. PFAS are a class of chemicals that have been widely used in a variety of products, including firefighting foam nonstick cookware and stain or water-resistant clothing. They are concerning because they have been linked to a number of human health ailments, including cancer, immune suppression, metabolic diseases, and developmental or reproductive problems. Further, they are difficult to break down and therefore persist in the environment or the human body, hence the name Forever Chemicals. The map is the first such map to cover Europe and the UK. And the journalists based their work on peer-reviewed methods from the U.S.-based PFAS Project Lab and PFAS Sites and Community Resources Map, according to the project website. It is a necessary and also scary result that you have achieved here, said Phil Brown of Northeastern University, who coordinated the U.S. map. The map comes from the same month that the ECHA proposed an EU-wide PFAS ban. In the U.K. only, the two PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, are covered by regulations, according to The Guardian. Quote, Our primary goal is to inform the public and to provide data to impacted community members, researchers, and regulators, and to contribute to building knowledge on PFAS contamination for the public interest, Lamond wrote. Potentially contaminated sites could therefore be prioritized by governments to conduct sampling campaigns and tailor action plans, to protect the public. And here is a group letter published at LeMond.fr. It is disturbing that the task of unveiling the shocking dimensions of PFAS contamination in Europe has fallen to journalists. We think it should have been the responsibility of Europe's governments and regulatory agencies to act earlier given the fact that the dimensions of the PFAS disaster became visible more than 15 years ago. The convenience obtained by adding PFAS to numerous products does not justify a large-scale and nearly irreversible contamination of large parts of Europe's water bodies, soils, and human population and the health impacts that will be borne by generations to come. PFAS are a large group of chemicals that are now known as able to cause harm to human health even at low levels of exposure. PFAS are called the forever chemicals because they do not break down in the environment but will be with us for hundreds or thousands of years to come. If production of PFAS continues, releases to the environment will continue to accumulate along with the existing legacy contamination, and human and environmental exposure will only increase. PFAS contamination is invisible and odorless, so there is no way to know exactly where contamination is found and how humans are exposed unless samples are taken and tested for the presence of PFAS. Unfortunately, PFAS contamination, rather than being discovered by systemic scientific searching and testing, has often been discovered accidentally in the past. Rather than finding PFAS contamination hotspots by chance, it is, of course, preferable for the protection of human, and animal, and environmental health to have a systematic approach for identifying PFAS contamination. In 2022, scientists in the U.S. led by Alyssa Cordner of Whitman College developed a presumptive contamination modeling tool that was used to pinpoint areas of likely PFAS contamination in the absence of monitoring data. The tool is considered invaluable for guiding future monitoring, regulation, and mitigation efforts in the U.S. By expanding this approach and providing a graphic overview of the sites in Europe known or presumed to be contaminated by PFAS, the maps published by Le Monde now show that tens of thousands of locations in Europe may be PFAS contamination sites. It is sobering to realize that this is likely to be an underestimate of the number of PFAS contamination sites in Europe, given the number of PFAS in use and the complexity of PFAS uses and supply chains. Furthermore, some known sources of PFAS, such as the spread of sewage on agricultural land, are missing from the current analysis. Nevertheless, although the presumptive contamination map may have some data gaps, it will still be a valuable resource for regulatory agencies, scientists, and the public to identify potential PFAS exposure sources, and the tool can be built on in the future as more information becomes available. PFAS is not just Europe's or the U.S.'s problem. PFAS production has shifted to emerging economies, especially in Asia. In our opinion, the presumptive PFAS contamination tool should now be extended in geographical scope and applied globally. Given that there is already much knowledge developed in the last two decades on PFAS properties, sources, emissions, exposure, effects, and treatment technologies, it is important that this information is disseminated internationally to avoid past mistakes being repeated in developing regions. Capacity-building efforts will be needed in these regions to ensure training and technology transfers from better-resourced countries, especially to ensure the ability to generate high-quality PFAS monitoring data. With a concerted global effort, PFAS awareness can be raised and PFAS use eliminated globally in the near future. Naturally, rather than identifying PFAS contamination and then applying remediation measures, it would be preferable to eliminate the PFAS emissions at the source. In 2019, the Global PFAS Science Panel proposed to begin phasing out the production and use of PFAS globally, starting with non-essential uses of PFAS. The concept of essential use was first put forward under the Montreal Protocol as a tool for phasing out substances harming the stratospheric ozone layer. The Montreal Protocol remains the most successful international instrument for environmental protection and serves as a powerful model for how to intervene when a chemical poses the risk of irreparable harm. The EU has taken up the concept of essential use in its efforts to curb impacts from harmful substances. Two weeks ago, on February 7, the European Chemicals Agency released a far-reaching proposal to ban all uses of PFAS unless a specific derogation has been granted for that use. Over the coming year, as the proposed restriction goes through the EU final regulatory decision process, the challenge will be to keep proposed derogations as limited as possible, particularly in the case of consumer products where the use of PFAS is not essential but market-driven. The PFAS restriction proposal already reflects a wide range of industry interests and should not be further diluted. It will be important that over the coming months, the developments around the PFAS restriction proposal will be followed closely by consumer groups, environmental NGOs, scientists, and not the least, the media. It is crucial that a strong and effective PFAS restriction enter into force as soon as possible. And that is one of the most important parts of the solution to the ubiquitous PFAS contamination of the environment and of plants and animals in the environment is to stop PFAS production and use at the source. Um, You know, when when the bathtub's overflowing, one of the most important things is turning off the water so no more is, is being added. Then dealing with the mess, dealing with the, the overflow. And that is something that our economic system is horrible at. Our economic system, uh, you know, capitalism is here for the financial benefit of the few, the owners, the capitalists, um, to the detriment or to the, the cost to the many. You know it's it's privatize the profits and and make the costs be borne by the public that's what we're do that's what we do with all toxic contamination it uh it is less expensive for companies to contaminate even with fines and quote-unquote repercussions than it is for them to not contaminate in the first place because they're making a tremendous profit in their practices, in their productions that are contaminating our world and our environment. So the real core, the real base, the real way to stop the contamination is one, ban the particular substance, but two is change our economic system. And make sure that we have a system that embeds the health of our environment and the health of individuals and the health of, you know, our forests, our oceans, our the plants and animals that we share this world with. That our economic system is based upon making sure that what we do to help ourselves live comfortable lives does not put toxins and does not put undue pressures on other organisms' ability to live and thrive and have successful lives themselves. So it's a tough fight, but it's an important fight. It's the difference between healthy societies and a healthy Environment and a healthy planet, and what we have today, which is a a system and a, a society that is very beneficial to a very small number of people, uh, is is marginally beneficial to an enormous amount of people, and is enormously destructive to a significant number of people and to the planet itself so PFAS one little piece of the big puzzle but an important one one that's impacting everywhere in the world today and one that we can take some action and I don't mean we I don't mean individually this isn't a you know plastic recycling thing which doesn't work but but we are trained and taught that it will work. We can't recycle our way out of PFAS. We can't on an individual level change that we have to pressure our governments to ban them, to, to ban the, the, um, chemicals that cause so much damage. And we've done it before, uh, to, to varying levels of success. DDT, is banned in many places not everywhere any even company even countries such as the u.s that banned its use within the country didn't ban its production and uh, use outside of the country at the same time so um there's there's much that can be done but these we can't solve this individually just like we can't solve global warming individually there's things that we can do that feel like they're helpful but the real change has to come from legislation, It has to come from changing the rules, setting the rules that prevent these uh, ecologically damaging things from happening. That will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Uh, you can find all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24 seven at movingtrainradio.com. And now here is George Monbiol with our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening.
0: Every human being grows, we grow through childhood. And then when we hit adulthood, we reach a plateau. Our body has a regulating system, which stops growth beyond a certain point, occasionally that system breaks down and a cell begins to multiply and to grow without regulation. And we call that cancer. Cancer is basically infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the human body. That is exactly what is happening with capitalism. Capitalism is dependent on infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the planet. Capitalism is the planet's cancer. And just like cancer in the human body, We have to cut it out. All through my adult life, I've been railing against corporate capitalism and consumer capitalism and crony capitalism, and these are the real problems. And it's taken a long time for the penny to drop. Maybe the problem isn't the kind of capitalism. Maybe the problem is capitalism. So let's look at the planetary disaster. We're losing the soil, we're losing the fresh water, we're losing the insects, we're losing all the other astonishing species that we share this planet with. We're losing the coral reefs, we're losing the rainforests. we're losing everything. And it's all going at a phenomenal rate. What's causing this? The driving force is economic growth. A global economy growing at 3% a year doubles every 24 years, and then it doubles again and then it doubles again. That's the trajectory we're supposed to be on. That's what governments want, where it just keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, which would be just fine if the planet was growing at the same rate, but we live on a finite planet. An infinite growth on a finite planet is a recipe for catastrophe. The only way it's been done so far is to use ever-increasing areas of the world as places we effectively steal from. Where the most powerful parts of the world extract materials and cheap labor from the weaker parts of the world. And then ever greater parts of the world have to be used as a dump to dump our waste. Until basically the whole world is an extraction zone and a dump. The whole atmosphere is a dump for carbon dioxide. Our cities are a dump for air pollution. Land is a dump for all the junk that we use for a day or two and then get bored of and pass on. Which you have to do if economic growth is going to continue. If you've got enough money you can buy a piece of land. You can buy the right to pollute the atmosphere with your private plane. You can buy a bluefin tuna steak despite the fact that you're driving a species into extinction. You can buy Mahogany furniture, whose extraction is causing massive destruction in the Amazon. Money translates into a right to natural wealth. Why? What's a just principle? There isn't one. And yet that unjust assumption is at the heart of capitalism. And those who are able to accumulate or inherit or grab enough money can then use that money to grab a huge chunk of our common treasury, our common resources, the stuff we all depend on to survive. And then they act like they have a natural right to do whatever they want with that. If everyone tried to live like the very rich today, we would need multiple planets, five planets, ten planets, a hundred planets, but we've only got one. But if instead you say let's have luxury but make it public luxury let's have fantastic public swimming pools brilliant public parks great tennis courts great art collections great museums great community centers great youth centers great playgrounds all those wonderful things that we try to accumulate for ourselves but let's do it publicly then in creating that space you don't take space away from other people You create space for other people. You don't need to multiply those resources again and again and again as everyone tries to do it privately. By doing it publicly, you need far fewer resources. You can have a really rich, fulfilling life with very high standards of human well-being but without the environmental destruction. And in so doing, we create community where community has been smashed apart by capitalism. I don't think there's another way we're gonna get through this century. If we carry on, believing that people who are rich today can live like the oligarchs and people who are poor today can live like the rich and everyone can just expand and expand and expand and accumulate and accumulate, which is what capitalism tells us to do, and that we can just keep on multiplying GDP and we can double economic activity every 24 years like we're doing at the moment, then the only possible outcome is catastrophe. We need a whole new economic system. Double Down has been achieving extraordinary things, reaching millions of viewers, making the films that you're not going to see anywhere else. And this has been made possible by the fact that it now has over a thousand patrons come and join and join the network, helping Double Down News to get even bigger and more effective than it is already.